Genesis 34, verses 1 through 7. And here we read the following. Now, Dinah, the daughter, of, uh, the daughter that Leah had born to Jacob, went out to visit the women of the land. When Shechem, son of Hamor, the Hivite, the ruler of that area, saw her, he took her and raped her. His heart was drawn to Dinah, daughter of Jacob. He loved, now I'm going to pause right there at that word. It says love in your translations, and I don't like that. Uh, we talked a little bit last week about how the concept of love in the Bible is the idea of giving pleasure and blessing to someone else ahead of self. Uh, lust, last week we said, was the concept of taking pleasure and blessing from someone ahead of self. And so I don't think, even though you can work, translate the Hebrew word ahav as love here, I don't think that's a good translation. Um, instead, I would call it a deep desire or an infatuation. Uh, so Shechem has uh, a deep desire and infatuation with this young woman, and he spoke tenderly to her. And Shechem said to his father, Hamor, get me this girl as my wife. Another thing you don't really say to somebody that you love about, objectify them. Get me this person as my wife. Uh, when Jacob heard that his daughter Dinah had been defiled, his sons were in the fields with his livestock, so he did nothing about it until they came home. Then Shechem's father, Hamor, went out to talk with Jacob. And meanwhile, Jacob's sons had come in from the fields as soon as they heard what had happened. They were shocked and furious because Shechem had done an outrageous thing in Israel by sleeping with Jacob's daughter, a thing that simply should not be done. This is God's word. Um, we're going to break the teaching tonight into four uh, brief points. We're going to look at the overall injustice that we see here. We're going to see the wrong overreaction on the part of the brothers of Dinah. We're going to see the wrong underreaction on the part of Jacob, the father. And then finally, we're going to see how the only way this long term, in the midst of this brokenness, gets cured is because of Christ's perfect action. Okay, so we're looking at the injustice, the wrong overreaction, the wrong underreaction, and Christ's perfect action that is the only thing that can uh, bring healing to it in the long run. So, first of all, the, the injustice itself. Uh, let me just give you a little bit of background with Jacob. We looked at Joseph last week and we traced the patriarchs at that time. Uh, the patriarchs you always take back to Abraham. Abraham is the father of Isaac. Isaac is the father of the twin boys, Jacob and Esau. Jacob is the younger brother. He's the one that's known as the deceiver. He's the one who steals his brother Esau's birthright by deceiving his father. And as a result of all of that, he's essentially running from his brother Esau for his life. And under his mom's advisement, he ends up running off way up north to a land called Paden Aram to his uncle Laban's house. And he lives there and he works there for a number of years. And he establishes a, a decent little life for himself there. He amasses a small fortune working for uncle Laban. He actually amasses a pretty large family, including multiple wives and a bunch of kids. After about 20 years though, uh, Jacob has decided I need to return home. The land that was promised to my forefathers is, is, is back down south. And so he heads back down south, and along the way, we get a couple of famous stories in the Bible, the story of Jacob wrestling with God. We get the story of his actually kind of surprising reconciliation with his brother Esau. And this is, by the way, I'm tracing Genesis 28 through Genesis 33 here. And it's at the end, so read it right up into our lesson. 
And right at the end of Genesis chapter 33, what we find is that Jacob is settling with his family and their people, their caravan, uh, near a town that's called Shechem. It's named after the crown prince of the town, and the dad, the ruler of that region, is a guy by the name of Hamor. And for uh, approximately 400 pieces of silver, Jacob and his family and his gigantic caravan are all allowed to settle in that region and prosper off of that land. And that gets us right to our text. And our text opens tonight with the account of Dinah. Dinah is the only female the only daughter mentioned amongst Jacob's children. It's a daughter of Leah and Jacob. And she's probably about 16 years old right now. And a little bit of this is speculation, but uh, it's possible that she didn't completely like living at a home full of boys. It's possible that, you know, she's 16 years old and she wants to venture out a little bit and be her own independent woman. And and, uh, yet, at that time, it would have been particularly strange and dangerous. And even today... Some of you uh, young ladies who have like backpacked through Europe know that when you told your parents that's what you were going to do, uh, they immediately have a little bit of a moment of panic and make sure that you're fully taken care of. Whereas, if your 19-year-old brother says that he's going to go do something like that, they're kind of like, yeah, fine, have fun. But their their daughters, there's a little bit, uh, parents sense, for whatever reason, a little bit of a sense of vulnerability attached to this. And most Bible commentators will actually say that what Dinah is doing here, when she ventures out from her family in a strange and foreign land, this is almost undoubtedly a little bit of an act of teenage defiance and disobedience. She's doing something she knows she probably should not have been doing. Uh, she's, pr- she's possibly even looking for women her own age at a Canaanite like pagan festival that they might have been celebrating at the time. For whatever reason, she's venturing out. And in that kind of precarious state, remember we said that town was named after a young prince named Shechem? A young adult wealthy ruler tends to struggle with feelings of entitlement. And so he meets this young, foreign, maybe attractive young woman who wanders her way into the town and is vulnerable, and he thinks that belongs to me. And so he takes her, he seizes her, he rapes her. And what we find out right after that in the lesson is it says, his heart, so Shechem's heart, was drawn to Dinah, daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman, and again, let me pause on that word. I think your translators are not doing you any service here the way they translate this. It probably, it better, so there, there's a word for like faithful love in the Old Testament. It's chesed. And the word used here, ahav, can be translated as love, but it probably more means an object of desire, an object of infatuation. He's infatuated with her. He speaks tenderly to her. It actually says he binds his soul to hers. And Shechem said to his father, Hamor, get me this girl as my wife. You know, like that, that doesn't quite sound like love to me. Call me crazy. It sounds like an entitled young man. I always think of Veruca Salt in, in uh, Willy Wonka on the Chocolate Factory. Daddy, I want a golden goose now. That's that kind of attitude, that entitlement. And uh, you know, it's interesting. Last week, we're not looking at the sin of lust this week. We're looking at the sin of laziness. Last week, we looked at Joseph and Potiphar's wife. And uh, as kind of a side story to that, we looked at the story of Amnon, who was a son of David, and his actual rape of a young woman by the name of Tamar. We said at that point that on the other side of ungodly desire is always evil. It's always, uh, sometimes it's a hatred. It's always like an objectification and a dehumanization 
On the, in other words, we have natural desires, but when they go unguided by God's word, they become unhealthy, unfiltered, unguarded desires. And those ungodly desires always give birth to something that is dehumanizing on the other side. And last week, what it was is after Amnon rapes Tamar, do you remember what he does? He kicks her out. He pushes her out of his bed, he pushes her out of his room, he pushes her out of his life, and he's dehumanizing her and objectifying her that way. This week, it's almost the exact opposite, but it's the exact same impulse. It's the impulse of dehumanizing human beings. Uh, It's the impulse of looking at this girl and saying, she's essentially my conquest and my trophy, and I'm going to keep this foreign girl close to me, and then maybe I'm a ruler not only of my people, but I'm a ruler over her peoples too. See, um, the, the first time I started to understand this, a couple years ago, I read a book by a man named William Struthers called Wired for Intimacy. And in the book, he does a really fascinating job of talking about something I don't obviously understand all that well, but the brain chemistry of what happens during like moments of intimacy. And particularly in the male brain, you have uh, two chemicals, one called oxytocin and the other called vasopressin. And again, certainly not an expert on this, but what he says happens uh, during moments of sexual intimacy in the male's brain is that those two chemicals get released at extraordinarily high levels, and they're pleasure chemicals, but the unique thing about them is they bind you to whomever is causing those chemicals to be released. And in a book called Wired for Intimacy, what he's saying is this is part of God's design, that when you have a sexual relationship with your husband or wife, so a relationship of a man and a woman in the context of marriage, what actually chemically happens at a chemical level, you get more bound to the person that you're having a sexual union with. And he says that is part of God's way of over the course of marriage, you becoming closer and closer and closer to the person that you've entered into a covenant with. It's a brilliant design, if that is, in fact, a design. But the interesting thing also is those chemicals are non-discriminatory. In other words, no matter what causes those chemicals to be released, you will become bound to. So, for instance, in Shechem's case, he binds himself out of the contract and covenant of marriage with a woman who is not his spouse, and yet he finds himself uh, uh, incapable of leaving her. I must have her. She's mine. This is also part of the reason what he would say in Wired for Intimacy is that, uh, for instance, young adults or, or any adults that have sexual relationships with people who are not their spouses, people who are, they are not committed to, they essentially get symptoms sort of like uh, trauma after the case because they, they're chemically getting bound to another human being that is not actually committed to them. And the end result of that is it feels like people who should be really important in your life are all of a sudden dropping out of your life and it leaves a certain level of emotional and psychological trauma. In fact, Struthers would say one of the interesting pieces of research he gives is that uh, males, apparently males who frequent prostitutes, two-thirds of them always go back to the same prostitute. And he says the reason for that is because of this biological love potion, which again, I don't like the term love, but this biological potion and connecting potion that goes off in our heads that binds us to that person. In other words, you'd expect that a guy who's engaging in that kind of risky and non-committal sexual activity, that maybe for the sake of novelty or whatever else, he'd be sleeping around with everybody. No, two-thirds of every guy who goes to see a prostitute goes back to the same prostitute. Why? Because the act of sexual intimacy is designed to bind you to the person that you're in a covenant relationship with in marriage. 
Shechem has bound himself to a woman that he is not married to, and therefore, in an unhealthy and controlling way, he says, she's mine. And he will go to extraordinary lengths in order to make sure that he is mine, including doing crazy and unhealthy things. So what does he do? He goes to his dad, Hamer, and he says, we need to find a way to broker a a financial relationship between Jacob and uh, his sons and his people in order to get Dinah as as, uh, the bridal price, in order to get her as part of the family. And so he offers this great financial deal for Jacob and his sons. And yet the sons, um, we'll, we'll get to what they do here in a second, but essentially what they attach to all of this is a rider of circumcision. We'll get to what they're doing here, but for the time being, let me just say, what you have here is a, an ancient story of a bunch of guys who are financially profiting off of a young woman's sexual abuse. And before we think that that just sounds so ancient and primitive, and thank goodness we have evolved and progressed beyond that today, um, let me remind you, it's been 14 months since Harvey Weinstein, uh, the the news was broke uh, when he got fired from his namesake-owned company for sexual abuse and rape uh, accusations. And since then, I've been tracking this on New York Times. They put out an article literally like every week talking about men who are household names, who are high profile, and f- have fallen from their positions in media and entertainment industries because one after the other, they see this is still happening today. And today, it's, it's interesting. The New York Times referred to it as a seismic historical shift in what behavior is tolerated in the workplace. In other words, today, people are righteously angry about that kind of abuse, and they should be. And I'll tell you what, back in that day, people were righteously angry about it too. But don't tell me that we've progressed so far beyond this, because in 2018, we're still struggling with some of these same problems. So, the brothers are righteously angry. We'll get to the father in just a second. But the brothers are righteously angry. They come in from the fields, and they're going to do something about this. But remember, the brothers, they got a little bit of their deception qualities from dad. And so they're the ones who actually take the lead on brokering this deal with Hamar and Shechem. And once they secure a good financial position for themselves, they, again, attach a rider that seems very unique, and they actually use God as part of the deception. They say, our God won't allow us to fully connect with people like this unless they start to adopt some of our ceremonial practices. And one of those ceremonial practices was circumcision. So... uh, Even in modern times, for an adult, particularly for an adult male, to go through the process of of circumcision, it's pretty debilitating. In ancient times, holy smokes, this is a very dangerous procedure and one that will leave you laid up for days on end. And sure enough, the brothers know exactly what they're doing. When they have the men of Shechem all get circumcised so that Dinah can become part of their people and part of their city. Those guys, three days later, are laid up in bed so that what? Levi and Simeon, two of the blood brothers of Dinah, lead the rest of the brothers into the city and kill all of the men of Shechem. I'll tell you what, I can almost, I think, get on board with what they're doing to this point. Except you know what the next step is? In other words, they're trying out of righteous anger to exact some justice here in an ancient kind of Wild West world. But you know what they do next? 
They plunder the land and take all of its financial goods, and then they take all of the women and children as their own. How are they any better than what Shechem himself did? See, Father Jacob offers a little bit of a mild rebuke for what the boys do here. He says, yeah, you shouldn't have done that. And later on in Genesis 49, if you continue to read through Genesis, when he announces his blessing over all of his sons, he actually has nothing but curses to say for Levi and Simeon and the boys for what the wickedness that they did right here. But for our point, just understand, they had every right to be angry about the mistreatment of their sister. But what did they do? They responded to sin with sin, which is a wrong overreaction. They deceived, they got violent, they profited during all of this wrongdoing, and their reactions are in no way, shape, or form any better than Shechem's disgraceful actions. Okay, so what you see there from the brothers is a wrong overreaction, but the next point is a wrong underreaction. Um... You know, it's interesting. I read probably a dozen different commentators on this text, and they will say there's, there's a decent amount of blame to go around in everything. In other words, one of the things that Genesis 34 does is it shows, just in general, at this point in the world, the brokenness of humanity as well as the brokenness of God's people. And there's blame to go around. But you know, uh, when I'm reading this through, and I've read it a couple dozen times just in preparation this week, one of the things that gets me most offended and disgusted when I read this is what? It's, it's actually Jacob. It's the, it's the father. You know why? And you might say, well, he doesn't do anything. That's the point. That's why it's disgusting. Because he actually doesn't do anything. What the Hebrew literally says, and he did not take any action. And I find that statement of inactivity to be one of the most condemning statements about men of God in the Bible. You go to a land that God himself has promised to you, one of the natives in that land rapes your daughter, and you do nothing. And I don't know how most people who are reading this, they can't find that to be at least a little bit offensive. And, you know, why? Here's, here's kind of the big idea of this whole lesson. Why is that offensive? Because deadly sin is not just doing bad things. Deadly sin is just as much not doing the good things that God has created and redeemed us to do. It's the difference, for those of you who can harken back to if you went through youth catechism classes, remember that blue catechism that you were taught through in 7th and 8th grade and that sort of thing? You remember the difference between the sin of commission and the sin of omission? It's the difference between doing bad things and not doing the good things that you're supposed to do. So most people in life tend to define sin in terms of, uh, if they define sin or evil or wrongdoing at all, they define it in terms of doing bad stuff and breaking laws. But sin in the Bible is just as much not doing the things that God has purposed us and the Spirit has empowered us to do in our lives. Probably my favorite biblical example of this is what Jesus teaches for this specific reason, the sin of omission in the story of the Good Samaritan in Luke 10. You know how that one goes? It's, it's almost eerily similar in some ways. You find a poor Jewish man who is walking down a very dangerous road, maybe much like Dinah did, and he gets mugged. A group, a band of thugs come and they knock him down, they beat him up, they strip him naked, they steal all of his financial, well, uh, financial prosperity, and they move right on. And the story ends of, of them there. But the main characters, the reason Jesus is telling the story is because of the characters that come next. We Remember, we find a priest 
who comes and he sees the poor Jewish guy broken alongside the road. And what does he do? He passes on by. He moves to the other side of the road and he keeps going. And then we find a Levite who is like your upstanding pillar of the community, highly religious person, church-going kind of guy. And what does he do? Exact same thing. He moves to the other side of the road. He passes on by. Why? Is it fear? Is it apathy? Is it just doesn't even notice it because of self-interest? We don't know why, but we know we're disgusted by it. And then a third guy comes, and he's a guy who would otherwise seemingly be a natural enemy to this poor Jewish guy. It's a Samaritan. And yet, at great cost and personal sacrifice to himself, he gets down, and he gets in there in the messiness, and he heals the brokenness of that man. And Jesus says, my friends, that's what a neighbor is. And you know what's interesting? I've taught that story probably hundreds of times over the course of my ministry, and I've never once had somebody get deeply offended at the mugging. But I've had lots of people get really irritated and offended by the priest and the Levite who do nothing. You say, well, they didn't do anything wrong. That's right. That's the problem. They didn't do anything. The problem is not that they did something wrong. The problem is that they did not do something right. And I would have to say, honestly, if I think there's a major offense that the world takes from the Christian church today, it's not probably our wild and immoral living. It's not a matter of Christianity's high violence. It's a matter of the fact that we don't always function like the salt and the preservative and the the healing of brokenness that God says is our reason for having some property in this world in the first place. Um, What do we do about it? I got a, an article sent to me a couple of weeks ago. It was an NPR article. Some of you might have seen it. Um, that said that I actually had come across this information. The first time I came across it, I remember I was on a plane. It was before I ever got to Milwaukee, but after I had accepted the call to St. Marcus. And I remember reading an article online at that point on the plane that said that Milwaukee at the time was the second worst city in the entire United States for African Americans to live. And the report that I just heard and a couple people sent to me from NPR is that, yes, Milwaukee, in 2018, Milwaukee is number two, Racine is number three, and most of the top 15 are actually found in uh, the Midwest, so areas of Chicago or St. Louis or Detroit or, or things like that. Um, And what do they do? How do they say, well, this is a really difficult place for a group of people to live? They look at things like incarceration rates. They look at things like uh, employment opportunities. They look at things like income levels and um, education attainment and um, things like home ownership. And I'll tell you what, in the past two, three years or so, uh, St. Marcus, I think, has worked really hard at moving into some of this. I think about two two of our leaders, Ron Kelly and and Mo Lorenz, sitting right here, have worked a lot in our community on things like home ownership and financial education and literacy. Uh, Obviously, at St. Marcus, things like education opportunities are a huge thing for us. And so I really do think we're moving in a really positive direction. Why? Because the gospel, when it comes to bear on your heart, it leads you. When you look at the grace of God and the healing that that brings for you eternally, if that spirit lives inside you, you can't help but take that same grace and healing of brokenness into the world around you. And I think we're moving in a good direction, but I also can't help but wonder, you know what, in a a congregation of a thousand people, what if this is everybody's like total mission? What if everybody contemplating the grace of God in their lives through Jesus Christ?
The safety, the comfort, the prosperity, the blessing, the, the, the good things, the good news that comes through all of that. What if my personal mission was to move into all of this? I wonder, if you could get 1,000 people in a city of 500,000 people to have that as part of their personal mission if we couldn't move from number two to number three on that list. And for that matter, I also don't know, this is, this is being tossed around in our conference of churches in the area. In fact, I received this email with this article from Ken Fisher, the president at Wisco. I received it from uh, Pastor Aderman, one of the pastors in our conference. And a bunch of pastors in our circuit are thinking, what do we do about this? We, we have, I mean, to be the salt of the earth, we have to act and have to do something in this regard, right? What if you could get a bunch of churches at the same time moving in this kind of direction? If you could get several thousand people working at this really hard, could you move from number two to number 15 on the list? I don't know. But when I think about the sin of inactivity and the sin of laziness, and as it exists in my life, I, I can't help but reflect on the fact that, you know what? I maybe haven't killed anybody, but have I been known personally for my uncommon kindness? I don't know that necessarily to be true. I maybe haven't cheated on my wife, but have I cherished my wife in a way that the world notices? I maybe haven't stolen from my company, but would I be known for my radical generosity? In other words, the world might not categorize me as a bad guy, but would they categorize me as uncommonly good? uncommonly helpful and that's kind of convicting because I'll be honest with you it's interesting as a pastor I get a lot of people sent my way and a lot of people with some real and deep needs sent my way and it's you know what I'm human it's easy sometimes to get almost numb and maybe even at times a little frustrated when the world is asking for something of a handout And yet the thing that I forget in the midst of all of that is from God's perspective, I am that beggar with his hand out asking for some grace and blessing. In other words, let me get to my final point here. I want my heart and I want your heart to mirror Christ's heart. The grace of God, interestingly enough, is not simply that God comes down and he gives undeserved love to those who are experiencing injustice. Oh yeah, it's that, but it's so much more than that. The grace of God, undeserved love, is that God actually comes down and he gives, he gives blessing to people who deserve to suffer justly. In other words, let me put this differently. In order for God to fully enact his justice, he could have sat on his throne in heaven, he could have looked down from a distance at us from afar, and he could have looked at our rebellion and our wickedness and our inactivity and our sins, and he could have stayed right on his seat, and he could have fully judged us from there, and he would have fully satisfied his justice in doing so. But you know what he wouldn't have done? He wouldn't have fulfilled his love. Because his love required him to come from heaven to earth. His love required him to get up, to move, to move into something messy and something broken, and to pour out his life for a bunch of people who didn't deserve it. In other words, I think part of what Jesus is teaching here in this lesson on Dinah tonight is I'll tell you what, when you read, when you, when you read through this account... I think the spirit is creating in you a longing for a father that's better than her father and a brother that's better than her brother. Um, Dinah's father, 
when she got raped, he, he didn't do anything. He didn't take any action. And her brothers, when they found out about it, they were angry and they moved forward in violence, but then they financially profited off of the whole thing. I think what the Spirit is doing in the story of Dinah is he's creating in us a longing for a father who absolutely does get angry at the suffering of his sons and daughters and he's willing to suffer himself, even hell itself, to rescue them from that pain. And I think he's creating in us a longing for a brother who doesn't avenge our suffering by hurting other people, but who's willing to experience suffering, unthinkable violence to himself in our place to undo any of the pain that we've experienced in this lifetime. And in our God, we find both the perfect father and the perfect brother and all of the love and forgiveness and hope that we could ever possibly want. And since that God's spirit, since that father and that brother's spirit now lives and rests inside of us tonight, what we're asking God to do is to give us not the old MO of the old self. The old self was one of inactivity. It was one of wild overreactions and violence. It was one of passive, scared inaction. What we're asking God to do is give us a new MO, one of positive, gracious action that makes us good neighbors in a fallen, ghetto world. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we confess a lot of sins as your people. The ones that come to our minds are the things that we've done, that we've done wrong, the bad things that we've done. Uh, but tonight as we come to your table, we're asking for forgiveness for that. We're also asking for forgiveness for inactivity. We realize that one of the reasons you've created us, empowered us, redeemed us is so that we can be your hands and feet and your voice in this world. And when we don't do anything, the world notices and they cry out in pain. Help us to get up and move, filled with your spirit, to work together to build the kingdom one soul at a time. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.